it really comes down a lot to the people that you bring on directly under you, who your directors are or your VPs are in each of these business lines. Like the one thing I always preach is you have to bring people on to lead your teams that are better at what that team does than you are. Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast featuring conversations with the most accomplished, admired, and amazing female revenue leaders throughout B2B tech. Taking the Lead is hosted by Christina Brady, a sales leader, lifelong learner, and president of Sales Assembly. This show is brought to you by Sales Assembly, the industry's first and only scale-as-a-service platform that helps high-growth tech companies scale better, scale faster, and scale smarter. Visit salesassembly.com to learn more. And now, let's jump into the conversation. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady. I am the Chief Strategy Officer for Sales Assembly, and I am here with Mary Ward today, the Chief Revenue Officer of Athenian. Mary, welcome, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thrilled to be here. Yay. Awesome. And before we get started, I want to make sure that I give a shout out to our absolutely incredible sponsors, Vidyard and Blueboard. If you have not yet heard of Vidyard, they are the video platform that is built for business. So your sales reps use Vidyard to grab their prospects' attention better than any email really could. So they're not just a plain video hosting platform. You can create personalized video experiences. You can track video performance analytics and even integrate video data into your CRM for follow-up. Definitely check out Vidyard if you are looking for a new way to capture prospect attention. Also, Blueboard, if you have not heard of Blueboard, they are a way to reward your sales teams with a variety of different experiences. So basically, when reps go Blueboarding, as they call it, they have this incredible time on their experience that you reward them with. So I was actually lucky enough to be able to enjoy one of their experiences. I booked a massage at a place down the street from me, and it was absolutely turnkey starting from day one. So companies can reward their teams without any additional work or time, which is, of course, absolutely incredible. And unlike cash or gift cards, reps are actually excited to talk about the experience that you provided. If you are looking to do something creative and you want to join other tech companies who are using Blueboard like Salesforce, Glassdoor, Mixpanel, or The Real Real, check them out at podcast.blueboard.com. I also want to give a shout out to a very, very meaningful sponsor of ours, Motion.io. So Motion is a podcasting service for scrappy marketing teams in B2B tech. They launch podcasts like ours. They are fully supporting and running our podcast here at Sales Assembly with Taking the Lead. They create the audio, the video, the written content. They help edit it and promote it. If you are looking to put together a show to elevate your company and the incredible voices around you, check them out at motionagency.io. All right, Mary, back to you. I am so excited to talk to you today and first just hear a little bit about your story. So from being at revenue performance to Ion Interactive as a VP of account services to Scribble Live as a chief marketing officer, then moving over to chief customer officer at Rock Content and now chief revenue officer at Athenian. You're my hero. You have sat in all of these incredible C-suite positions. So just 
I would love to hear a little bit about your story and how you made these moves. I think so many women would love to know your story and what you've done. Yeah, it's definitely, it's been a journey. It's been a bit of a journey. I think that's the, the first time I've heard it compressed into sort of that, <laughs> that 10 <laughs> second sound bite. No, you know, I think really for the, the last 15, 16 years or so, I've always been really heavily focused in the SaaS space. I think that's sort of the one consistent piece of my background for the last 15 plus years has really been working within the SaaS industry. I love that space. I love the growth of that space. I especially love working with sort of startup, really high growth, velocity-based organizations and companies within the SaaS market. So I think that that's always been sort of the core foundation of sort of how my career has progressed. Going back into the first really third or so of those 15 years, I was almost all on the customer side. So everything I did was sort of post-sales and really focused on retention of our existing customer base, a lot of expansion work within the existing customer base. And then slowly over the last, I would say eight or 10 years, I've sort of started to work a lot more dedicated in sort of the sales and marketing space as well. So that's kind of what brought me where I am now as the chief revenue officer at Athenian is really that opportunity to bring all of those orgs together and sort of sit across sales, marketing, and CX, which for me is really exciting to be able to own that customer all the way from initial sort of MQL status into hopefully a happy, healthy, renewing, expanding customer. But yeah, that's kind of how I progressed and did a lot of focus as well on the operational side of the businesses, uh, managed a lot through a lot of acquisition processes, which gave me a lot of additional exposure to different lines within the business. And I think just really having a, a long career of being open to any and all jobs that needed to get done and, and really embracing the increased exposure and knowledge that you pick up along the way by just being open to, to doing a lot of new challenges. I mean, when you talk about openness, I think a lot of people would be really intimidated to take on the kinds of roles that you have. That's a lot of pressure, especially working in tech, which we know is so male dominated to step into all these leadership positions. There had to be some element of that that was somewhat intimidating. I mean, looking at your first move into kind of hitting that C-suite at Scribble Live, what was that like going from being the GM there and then moving into multifaceted C-suite role, CCO and CMO? How did that come about? And how did you know that you were ready to take that on? Yeah, that was a really interesting transition. So when I went to Scribble Live, I was largely focused at the time on the customer side of the business and had spent about the last year as the full GM of that particular line of business. So I had had exposure to you know, managing an engineering team, managing a finance team, which I always joke made it very clear that I don't want to do that long term. <laughs> I love engineering and finance folks, but there are people who are way better at that than I am. So you kind of learn along the way what you really enjoy and what you're really good at. And so when I originally stepped in, working with the customer team within the larger Scribble Live group, kind of across all their business lines, certainly made the most amount of sense from a career progression standpoint. So that was really easy for me to kind of step into that CCO role. The CMO role really came about largely driven by the need of the organization. The marketing department at the time was struggling. They had a lot of challenges. There were a lot of new brands that were coming under one umbrella, tackling a lot of new regions across a lot of different product lines. 
needing to do an entire new rebrand into the US market. Scribble Live was a Canadian company purchasing a US based company. So there was just a lot of moving parts there. And while I didn't have 10 or 15 years of direct marketing experience, I'm an operator. I'm extremely operationally focused. I knew what problems they were facing. And I said, okay, maybe I've never solved these problems within a marketing org, but I've solved them half a dozen times in different departments within the company. I'm going to surround myself with really strong day-to-day marketing executors so that I can focus on the operational piece of the business. And so that's what we did. I brought on a couple of really strong executors that I knew could keep the engine running in the day-to-day while I sort of focused on the higher level objectives of of getting marketing pulled together largely within the organization and and really understanding what were our priorities, what was our focus and, and how do we do it? So it was an interesting, it was an interesting move, not really spurred by tons of passion for that space, but really just a passion to fix something that was broken within the organization. And then I loved it. I just sort of fell in love with it and have kind of always wanted to keep my hand in the marketing and sales space since then. That's incredible. And it's also rare hearing you talk about all of the different responsibilities and lines of business that you oversaw. That is somewhat rare to have one person that is having so many different areas of the business that are under their direct oversight. It's also not the last time that that happened to you, right? So your current role at Athenian, tell us a little bit about how you found that company and your chief revenue officer, but kind of the topic of the day today is sort of talking about these really, really multifaceted roles that are somewhat rare, but essentially how to manage so many different lines of business as an executive. So as a starter, you're now CRO at Athenian. Tell us about that role, how you got there and some of the uniqueness. Yeah. So Athenian is a really great company. They're in that super high growth SaaS space that I'm super deeply passionate about. And I became familiar with them through actually my long-term friend and mentor, who was working as a operating partner for one of their lead investment companies. And she was their interim CRO at the time, had been brought in about nine months prior to me coming on board to really sort of overhaul their sales and marketing team and kind of get them ready to to sort of really launch into super, super rapid growth mode. So she was placed there as the interim CRO. And it's funny, she and I would kind of talk on nights and weekends just casually as fellow women peers in the workforce. And we would bounce ideas off each other. And we talked about Athenian for really a couple of months and brought in some other sort of director level women that we knew to help that organization. And she kept talking about, I need to find a CRO. I need to find a CRO. And maybe 45 days into these conversations, she called me one night and said, I think it's you. I think you're you. (laughs) And it it just sort of clicked. And I was like, oh, okay. All right, let's go do that now. It just worked out so well. I mean, they're SaaS focused. They've got a heavy services component. They're in that rapid growth mode. It was just all the the checkboxes for me that I really loved. And I knew because she was such a long-term mentor of mine that I had worked with for so long, I knew I would be stepping in and taking over a program that was well on its way and had a solid foundation over the last you know, six months prior that she had been working there. So it was just a great opportunity. The power of networking. I mean, I think tremendous. we hear about it, like you have to network, you have to rub elbows. Me personally, I'm a shy person. You wouldn't know it because all day I have to act like I'm not shy, but I'm actually a very shy person. And I don't think that I've fully understood 
the importance of your network until these last couple of years. But this is often how these big moves happen, which is I knew people at the right place at the right time. I had been talking, I had been networking, and this opportunity is born. And so if anything, it's this lean into a network, meet as many people as you can, build community. The, the, the Texas community, it's large and it's vast and it's constantly reappearing. So I love that the way that you found this next opportunity was through that. It's leveraging the network and relationships that you had. And then you were seen. It was like you were brought into the light. It's very cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, and networking is hard. It's it's funny. You wouldn't think it with me either. But I also am. I sort of struggle with that concept of like, well, how do I build a network? Yeah. Like, I'm so busy. I've, I've got a full time job. I've got two kids. I've, my husband works like and I'm supposed to go build a network. But I think what what people don't realize is that you already have a network. Like you don't have to go build a network. Your network exists inherently. You work with people every day in your current roles and prior roles. So for me, it's less about how do I build a network? And it's more about how do I maintain and nurture the network that I have today? How do you maintain those professional connections with people who go to other organizations that you bring in that transition in and out of your life? So for me, it's really about focusing on that. And anytime I take on a new opportunity, it's looking at the challenges that I know that organization faces and just saying, who have I worked with in the past that would be great at this? And it's being helpful. When you help people, they want to help you in return. And over time, that network just becomes a part of your resource center. I mean, I've been with Athenian for about two months now and have already tapped several people from my network, either for full-time jobs or for contracting work, because I knew that they were just the right resource for that job. So your networks exist. It's just about nurturing them and maintaining them the same way you nurture and maintain friendships. It's, it's really the same way in business. Well, double tapping on that, because this is an excellent point. And I think a lot of people feel exactly what you kind of first talked about, which is like to me, when I hear build a network, it feels insurmountable. Mm -hmm. Like you, I'm a parent, I have a full time job, I have my life. And then there's at some point in time, I have to rest and turn my brain off, like, maybe. And I think a lot of people feel that too, where this idea of building this network feels like it's something that is so out of reach. I love your take on like it exists, you know, people, it's there, nurture it. What are some ways that you do that with such limited emotional and physical bandwidth? Yeah. So I think for one thing, it's find a network of people you like and enjoy spending time <laughs> with, <laughs> right? So, yeah. And don't limit yourself into thinking, okay, I work in the SaaS space. I'm a woman in tech. I have to have a network full of women in tech SaaS professionals. Like that can be so limiting and overwhelming because that's where you're suddenly like qualifying and disqualifying who makes a good network. Like I think anyone who is smart and wants and driven makes a good network. So for me, like I have a group of women that I know socially that are all also executives or high power women within their organizations. And I've got a couple lawyers, I've got a CMO in that network and countless times we've been able to help each other. And sometimes it's referring each other to different roles or helping employees. Sometimes it's, I'm going to take a new job and I have to negotiate an offer for options or shares. Like, how did you do this last time? Completely different industry, completely different business. But that piece of what I needed, that person was perfect for. So for me, it's, it's just finding people that, that you enjoy being around that can lift you up, that can offer a knowledge base that you don't have or aren't as strong with. 
and find that. And then find things like this, right? Like, you know, we were connected through our network, right? So it's in these opportunities where you can have that professional dynamic that that makes sense for what you want to be doing. And it often winds up being so personally and professionally worth it. I mean, going back to the role that you're in right now, this was born of relationships that you had built. And again, I think being recognized for the great things that you do, right? We can't ignore that, that like things don't happen by happenstance. You earned your way into being a contender for this role. Like you and I talked about in prep for, this is kind of a, a unique role that you're in. You oversee more than the typical CRO. Tell us a little bit about your unique role as CRO and kind of what your oversight looks like. Sure. So chief revenue officer is a unique, title because it does tend to mean slightly different things in different organizations. It's a little bit like COO in that sense, where it's um, not always clear by title alone what the responsibilities will be. That said, I've typically found that CROs largely oversee sales and marketing tend to kind of be the components that make the most amount of sense for that. I think what's a little bit unique about the CRO role that I hold at Athenian is I also own all of the customer experience side of the business. So not only do I manage the marketing and sales team, but I also manage our CSMs, our onboarding, our delivery, our services team as well. It's great for me because once you are in my universe as a prospect or customer, you are mine. I own you at that point, right? I like, own you. <laughs> there's no one else that gets to own you. I am responsible for your satisfaction and delight with our organization. And I don't think that that's wildly common. I hope it becomes more common. I think it's such a great combination of focus and it does so much for an organization to have all three of those teams living under one umbrella, but it's not hugely common. And I, I think it's the CX piece that throws a lot of CROs off. That's such a different animal than sales or marketing that it's sometimes difficult to add that into your management if you haven't managed that type of organization before. Do you think that's why it's not as common? Is it because, I mean, a new business sales organization and a growth or client success organization, they are so different. I mean, the entire journey is different. The tooling are different. The metrics are different. The KPIs. Do you think it's just that nuance why it's not as common? I think so. Yeah, I think absolutely. How you manage net new sales is very different than how you manage expansion sales, which is night and day different than how you handle just basic SaaS retention and adoption. And that is one thing you do see a lot within a revenue org is they'll manage the expansion of existing customers, right? So yeah. that sometimes will live within the revenue org, but the retention and the adoption piece frequently does not. I think in, in this instance with Athenian, it made a ton of sense to do it that way because that was my background, because I was it's second nature for me to manage yes. retention and adoption because I had done that for years before getting into sales and marketing. But yeah, it, it's totally retention and adoption in the SaaS space is just it's a radically different relationship than the net new sales pieces. Yeah. And we're porting all up kind of into one hierarchy. You mentioned that like this is actually how it should be structured. I believe mm -hmm. in this. Mm -hmm. What are some mm -hmm. of the other reasons or takeaways on why you feel like this should actually be the future? Like you should not, in your opinion, you should not be the rarity. This should be how this right. role is structured. Why do you think so? So I think there's a few reasons. One is I think when you start to look at the life cycle of your 
customers. Again, I say customers, but I mean starting all the way from lead status, right? When you start to look at that entire customer journey, I think you pick up a lot of efficiencies and a lot of ways of managing a customer that are much better for the customer than what you would do if you had these two teams separate. So what I mean by that is if you've got a, a clear division in your organization between net new sales and your customer team, your sales org is going to focus on driving the highest, largest value deals that they possibly can. And that has a lot of potential to slow down deal cycles, to oversell a customer before they're ready to really buy that scale. Whereas in our organization, we bring we want to bring customers in the door where they are at that point in time. If that means a smaller ACV, if that means a smaller adoption within their business unit, that's fine for us because I know on the I'll get them on the expansion side, right? Or right, I'll get them when they right. come up for their renewal piece. So instead of looking at what is their initial purchase or what is their renewal amount, I'm able to look at that customer holistically from start to finish and address them and service them all the way from marketing through to customer experience with that very, very, very high level focus. And it removes a lot of the tension that sometimes exists between sales and CX organizations. I'm not fighting with someone who's trying to close the biggest deals in the world. They're not fighting with me because my team's not ready to take on a hundred of the biggest customers that they can close. Like we're building a journey and a handoff that is totally focused on what's best for the customer because we know we'll be able to grow and expand them down the line when that customer is ready for that. Does that make sense? I mean, so much sense coming from working at organizations where traditionally these things were very, very separate. I have to imagine it also makes it a lot easier for you to make positive changes and shifts within the overall business because your scope isn't limited. So do you find too that you, you can actually be more agile because of it? Oh yeah. And the feedback loop is so incredible. We talk so much about like, I don't care what size organization you are. Like if you haven't said silo in the last six months, (laughs) you're just not talking to anyone, right? Like we all like combat these silos between like sales and marketing and CX. And when you're all together and you, and what I think is really great too, is all of my direct reports, I refer to them as my revenue leaders and they're all responsible for driving revenue. And if sales misses a month, CX knows they've got to step up and help fill that gap and vice versa. So we are all responsible together for driving revenue to this organization. And I find that the connection that we have between our customer experience team and our marketing team is so much stronger. I mean, in so many organizations, marketing and the customer team, it's difficult. Like once the prospect signs, marketing is like, okay, I converted my lead to deal. Like, and the involvement from there is sometimes very weak, but when it all lives under the same umbrella, we get more focus from marketing. We get more customer marketing focus that helps us with retention and expansion and adoption type features. The same is true even outside the revenue org, working with a product team. I'm not fighting with the sales leader to get retention features versus adoption features. I'm again, I'm looking at that entire customer journey and saying, where do my customers need the most amount of help and how can the product get them there? And that's what I'm going to my product team and my engineering team to get on the roadmap. Um, So we're not competing for adoption versus acquisition type of product features. We're just getting really good customer features on the roadmap. I find eliminates so much friction and really allows us to boil down to what is best for the customer within the organization. 
I mean, the other piece you touched on there that I want to lean into more is that marketing rolls up to you too. Mm -hmm. That That's probably the rarest of all, because in not only my own personal experience at various companies that I've been at, but also a lot of the companies that are members of sales assembly or companies that I talk to, it's like when it comes to sales support and marketing, it's like the left hand doesn't always know what the right hand is doing. And there is often a ton of friction there. Mm -hmm. It's hard to align on KPIs. It's hard to get everybody to work together. Everyone's got their marching orders and they go off. So the fact that marketing rolls up to you I think is also incredible in thinking about the entire revenue machine and having everybody roll up to you, I think is a great start because you can be aligned from mission objectives, KPIs, whatever it may be. But I have to imagine that there's still some difficulty getting everyone to work together, like reporting to one place is the same, but sure. what kind of friction, what kind of friction do you still deal with? Even though it's meant to be aligned, there has to be some. Yeah. I think all the same friction that, that a lot of, I think just to a lesser degree, right? Like the sales and marketing dynamic, the sales and customer experience dynamic. Like I think that those exist everywhere. It's kind of what I call yeah. the positive tension within an organization. And, and I do think there there is actually very positive tension that exists within those organizations. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely the challenges of bringing everyone together. I think one thing that helps is having a really clear set of metrics that follow someone all the way through MQL to retention and renewal. I mean, it's, what is it? October 21st, right? So I've spent the last month or so heads down building my 2022 bottoms up plan. And I know what our total revenue goal as an organization is for the end of next year. And I'm able to map that from how many MQLs do we need all the way to how many customers am I going to have churn out? And I think when you bring that visibility to your marketing and your sales and your CX leaders, and they understand how the customer moves through that journey and how their performance and their metrics directly impact what comes after that, I think it helps to break down those silos. It helps for marketing to understand if they fall short on MQLs, there's a direct correlation to number of net new customers. And sales understands that if they don't hit their net new customer goal, there's a direct correlation to the customer's teams starting ARR for the quarter and their ability to hit our retention numbers. So a lot of it is just bringing that revenue visibility to every leader within the org so that they do understand what their performance does to the rest of the business. I mean, you make it sound so easy, but I know it's not like, that's a really big job. And like going one step further with that, one of the benefits of having multiple people who are heads of lines of business is as somebody who is sitting in the C-suite overlooking one element of the business, it is nice to have peers that sort of become a hive mind that you can work with to build the business together. Do you feel like because so much of that rolls up to you that you have that level of internal support or a team, if you will, that you are executing the go-to-market plan with? Or is it sometimes lonely at the top? <laughs> so I think there are always times where it's lonely at the top. And there is certainly an immense amount of pressure in this role. Mm -hmm. um, if my sales team misses quota for the quarter, I don't have anyone else in CX to lean on. <laughs> to make that up in expansion revenue. That's on me too, right? Yes. So there is certainly an immense amount of pressure. I think that 
the more you take on within an organization, the more important your relationships become with other peers within the org. So building really strong relationships with your COO, your CEO, your CTO, like these are people that also need to, to intimately understand every aspect of the business. And sometimes it's actually helpful to get a really outside opinion on what might be broken in your revenue model or what's not working for the business. So I do think it is sometimes a challenge. I also think it really comes down a lot to the people that you bring on directly under you, who your directors are or your VPs are in each of these business lines. Like the one thing I, I always preach is you have to bring people on to lead your teams that are better at what that team does than you are. And so I have a marketing leader who's better at marketing than me. I have a sales leader who's leader who's better at sales than me. I have CX leaders who are better at CX than I am. Like you have to find those leaders that are better at their specific specialty than you are and to be okay with that and to go find that and seek that out. Because then if I'm struggling with one piece, I can go to them. I can work with my team as well as working with my peers and other functions within the company. I love the low ego, always learning approach that you just talked about. I don't think enough people are willing or feel safe enough to have that philosophy and certainly to talk about it because there is the assumption that if you're sitting in this spot, you are the best at all of that, which we know is completely false. I have really a very, false. very similar take mm -hmm. as you where I say, I always want to hire people who are smarter than me. And one day I'll work for you. That's great. Like I hire people that I want to work for one day. So few people talk about that, but it is critical to have this low ego. I always want to grow. I always want to learn mindset. And I imagine that you probably spend a lot of time in hiring. So it has to be refreshing for people to come across a leader like you that is so open to bringing in people and elevating them for who they are and their intelligence and their skill set. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Strengths Finder done by Gallup. So Gallup, yes. Yeah, and I yes. love it because it talks so much about not fixing your weaknesses, but playing to your strengths and hiring people and surrounding yourself with people who are better at the things that you're not good at. And so I know one of my strengths is operationalizing and being able to bring these three teams together and being able to see the big picture. Not everybody is great at that. I'm really good at that. I can see the big picture. I can see how all the puzzle pieces are going to come together to get us where we need to be at the end of the day. That is my strength. There are people whose strengths are 100% in the day-to-day -day execution of their role. They are excellent executors in marketing or in sales or in CX, but might struggle to see how it all fits together. So I think you just, you bring people on board who want to rise with you and who you want to pull up to be with you. And I think the more chances you can do that with women, also the better, because I think that notion that we can't lift other women up because they will become a challenge to us is also one that we all combat daily. Right, or that there's limited spots, right? right. I think there's this idea, if you walk into a boardroom with all men, you wouldn't bat an eye. But if you walked into a boardroom with all women, you would go, where are all the men? And so I think there's this idea that is ingrained that there's only a certain number of spots, right? It's that there's not that's equity right. here. There's yeah. only a certain number of spots and that's it. So, I mean, you're hitting on some really, really powerful things here that I think are big life advice for everybody, regardless of your role. I'm learning now how to speak to what I'm not good at because we all know what we're not good at, but mm -hmm. we spend our entire lives trying to compensate versus say, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not great at that. 
this is what I'm really good at. Like you, if you want somebody to do this, that's what I'm great at. I hear executives say that, but I think a lot of individual contributors or frontline managers or even directors aren't given the safe space to be able to say like, this isn't a strength of mine. I can do it, but like, here's where my strengths lie. More people need to take a page from that book. That's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And, and listen, like that's not, I don't take on new challenges or try new things. Yeah. It's, it's all a balance. And I think one good way to, to think about, to think about that, like, how do I know if something could be a strength if I just nurtured it for a little while, right? It's finding those opportunities to take on challenges and new tasks or things you haven't done before when you are allowed to skim your knee and not have it ruin the business, right? So if I'm interested in something that I maybe haven't done as often, I'll think about, okay, what are some ways that I can start to to try and learn this new skill or learn this new thing, but in a way where if I mess up a little, I know I'm not going to destroy the whole business. And then you you learn over time, like, oh, I could really be good at this. Like I can actually take this on versus, okay, I'm okay at this. I can do it in a pinch, but this is just, I don't enjoy it. It's not going to be in my wheelhouse. So I think playing to your strengths is great, but you definitely still have to be open to taking on new challenges. I mean, otherwise I'd still only be working with customer success, right? At some point I had to take on sales for the first time and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Interestingly for me, I think it started with really focusing heavily on expansion, which was a little closer to home for me. So I said, okay, let me focus on expanding my existing customer base. That feels like something that I can skin my knee on if I need to. And then eventually I realized I really love it and I'm passionate about it. And so I was able to take that bolder step to work with net new sales. Oh, what a deliberate approach. They say that you look at somebody like a tightrope walker, right? And it's like, how do you walk in this really, really thin line without falling off? And it's every step is deliberate. Mm -hmm. Like it looks easy, but it's calculated and being hard or being foreign isn't the issue. It's the deliberate nature by which you take the step forward and acknowledge what's going to be hard. What's not, where do I fit in? Mary, you are brilliant. I feel like I could talk to you. (laughs) I could talk to you all day. But we are coming to the close of our time on this episode. And so I am going to leave that incredible feedback looming out there for everyone to chew on Mm -hmm. like a dessert. And instead, (laughs) transition over to our rapid reveal section, if you are on board with that. Fun. Let's do it. Okay. So the rapid reveal, as listeners know, it's five questions. You have 60 seconds or less to answer each. And these are meant to help us get to know you a little bit more. So number one. Who did you idolize growing up and why? I feel like this is probably a little bit of a cheesy, corny answer, but it is what it is. Do it. I idolized my mom growing yeah, up. Yeah. I, I was the baby of four children. The oldest is 15 years older than I am. So my mom was, oh, was yeah. making and raising babies for a long time. And she was a stay-at-home mom up until her baby, me, went to middle school. And when I went to middle school and my mom felt like, okay, I've raised all my kids. She went back to nursing school and I spent years around the kitchen table doing homework together. And she was in her fifties and decided she'd never gone to college, never graduated college, but decided I'd done what I needed to do. And now I'm going to go be a nurse. And I think for me, it was really influential early on in my life to realize that we all pick and choose and it's never too late. And you can always have all of whatever you want in different ways. And so for me, like that was just such a, an inspiring thing for me to see growing up and doing homework around the dinner table with her and watching her take on a challenge that 
in 50 years of her life, she never thought she would get a chance to do. The impact of strong women. I mean, I tell you, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. And especially, I mean, she was a working mom and, and here I am, or she was a stay at home mom with four kids. And here I am as, a, as an executive mom and we understand each other because we both did what we were so passionate about at the time. Oh, I mean, being a stay at home mom is a job that I think is harder than I could do. I have so much respect for women who are able to stay home and raise kids because thousand percent. Woo, woo, that leads us into number two, which is what is an irrational fear of yours? <laughs> so anyone who works with me will know this because for about a week before I have to do this every six months, I'm like a complete wreck in the office. My irrational fear are dentists. Like uh, I can tackle almost any challenge in the world. You put a dentist in front of me and forget about it. And here's the thing, like you asked specifically irrational. It's entirely yeah. irrational. I have unmedicated delivered babies and I would do that again before I would willingly walk into a dentist unsedated. Oh my God. Like this is like, <laughs> these wow. are the irrational fears. And it, it honestly, it becomes a running joke. And amongst any of my friends or colleagues, because I'm just a disaster. I have to take the whole day off. Everyone knows when I've gone to the dent. It's just completely irrational. It is entirely like irrational. We could spend a lot of time there. <laughs> that is, I mean, because like, like dentists are kind of scary, but when you're like, I would have an unmedicated childbirth. I was like, now we are in a different realm because yeah. I had a yeah. obviously medicated C-section and I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> I would rather go to the dentist than do that. So maybe episode part two with you, we'll just talk about, we'll, we'll break down. There's probably some therapy to be had yeah. here to figure out yeah, where, yeah. <laughs> where this stems yeah. from. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it relates to number three, which is, do you have any reoccurring dreams? Do I have reoccurring dreams? So I'm a little bit of a lucid dreamer. So my dreams are always very interesting. I, I have that dream state where you like, you're half awake and you're half asleep. So my dreams are so it's, it's a very bizarre way to, to dream, but I do have one reoccurring dream. And it's funny because I've talked to a lot of people who have also had this almost exact dream, but with like a different twist to it. So for me, it's always waking up in high school and realizing I have an exam for a class that I've never attended. <laughs> it's not college. It's not like the times in your life when school is the most pressuring. It's always high school. And I always never understand how I just never went to this class and how am I going to pass this exam? But it's funny because I talk to people who have the same one. They have the same dream that like they didn't go to a class and have the exam in college or it's funny how those, I guess those traumatic moments come back to repeat themselves time and time oh my again. Gosh. And I'm sure it relates to me having to take on some challenge at work that totally. I don't feel prepared for. So I'm going to have this nightmare about high school. But yeah, I get that one every few months. It's a real yeah, <laughs> Want to talk about a time I never want to go back to. It's like, high school. Like I, Oh, it's terrible. Year. And I will tell you, I wake up in the mornings and I'm like, Oh, okay. I only have to do my company's revenue plan for the whole year. I don't have to take that algebra test. I didn't know I had <laughs> hands down, hands down. I never want to have to write another thesis, like 26 page paper for AP English. No, thank you. Never. <laughs> no, thank you. All right. Number four, what was one pivotal moment in your life? Oh, Wow, that's a tough one. I mean, I think in a lot, you know, I'm sure recency syndrome is kicking in here a little bit. So I suppose I'll answer that in two parts. I think one incredibly pivotal moment happened to me two months ago when I took this role at Athenian. A lot of my history prior to that, I'd taken on new challenges, new roles, new companies, but most of them were through acquisitions. 
And so that was really the first time in many, many years that I had sort of been kicked out into the workforce and thought, okay, I've got to find a new job. I have to like actively go out and look for my next opportunity. And I found Athenian through the network and that was great. So in a lot of ways, I think that's one of the most pivotal moments. And then I suppose prior to that, maybe going back 11 years to when I met the mentor that brought me into that role, who taught me so much about being a female executive with kids and how to balance that. And I truly deeply tried to live that for the last 10 years and allow the male and female members of my team to do the same, to feel safe living their lives. As working, you have to have that balance. So I take vacations, I take time off, I cut out early to go to ballet practice or or whatever it is. And I let my team see that and I let them know that that's safe. I learned that from her. I learned that from my mentor. Did you say you cut out early to go to ballet practice? I do. From time to time, I do. Yeah, not every week, but there are times when I need to go watch my kid dance. <laughs> okay. That, okay. That makes me, I don't know why I, I thought like you're going to ballet class. I'm like, Oh, oh no, yeah, goodness. No. Beautiful. I was like, no. Mary, you are an oh, please. Just, no. Peel you open. Yes. Go to their <laughs> ballet practice. Absolutely. I, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's the answer to number five. But number five, what is a unique thing about you? So I don't know how unique this is. I suppose it's less and less unique over the last few years, but I am an avid reader. I absolutely love reading. I don't have time for it. So I have taken to Audible over the last years. And I now read or listen typically to about 40 or 50 books a year. Whoa. And so I have really learned how to bring Audible into my day-to-day life. Not as much now that I'm not on the road as much, driving around to and from an office every day. Yeah, I love to read. I read all sorts of different genres and find it's a good conversation starter because I read almost anything. So I can always find common ground with people on, there's always one or two books in my library that fit whatever genre someone is interested in. So yeah, I love books. You are fascinating. I feel like everybody listening is going to want to be your friend, present (laughs) company included. So we are at the end of our time. Where can people find you, connect with you? How do people become your friend? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm out there. I'm on all the social networks. I'm on LinkedIn. Like you, I'm shy. So I'm there, but I love building networks of like-minded people that I like being around. So yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn and let's connect. You never know, right? Yeah. Well, Mary, thank you so much for this incredible time that you've spent with us and sharing all of your insight. This has been eye-opening for me and I imagine for our listeners. So Thank you and thank everybody else for listening to another episode of Taking the Lead. We will see you next time. This episode was brought to you by Sales Assembly. For more information about membership or our free 60-day trial, visit us at salesassembly.com. And if you like what you just heard, please subscribe to Taking the Lead on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.